podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're in this series, The Supernatural, and we've been in it since the beginning of the year. And you remember, we've talked about this idea of saying, look, it's God who has broken into space and time. It's God who, from the beginning, was, all, was the one looking for Adam when Adam sinned. That the God that we believe in, the God of the Bible, the God of our faith, is the kind of God that doesn't wait for man and humanity to say, hey, I'm trying to find you, but he's a God that says, you know what? I'm searching for you. Adam, where are you? That our view of God is shaped by this defining piece about who he is. He's the God that searches for us. And we talked about this idea of, of living in this, in this in-between, this, this world that was, that's fallen and this world that will one day be remade and everything be made new. And we've talked about that because of Jesus, Israel's true king, that the Old Testament Israel kind of looked forward to, and the world's true Lord that Paul announces for all of us, Jesus comes as the one who says, I have paid for the healing of all things. When Isaiah says, by his stripes you are healed, he's talking about everything being set right that's wrong with the world. But it also gives us this this hope that what's coming is better than what is, right? That here we are, we live as the body of Christ, we live as believers in this here and now moment where we have this foretaste of what's coming and we have the down payment of it, St. Paul calls it. But we know that what's coming is better because one day we get the fullness of what Jesus paid for. And so how are we to live in the here and now? In the last couple weeks in particular, we've been talking about why the gifts of the Spirit matter. They matter because this isn't sort of something we can kind of practice in our spare time and it's sort of like, you know, lifting weights that, you know, you you can live as a human being if you don't lift weights, but it just looks cooler if you do and, you know, obviously I don't. And, you know, but but, but why do we talk about this? Is it just something to the side of who we are? And the truth is the gifts of the Spirit is the, is, is the Holy Spirit at work in us now to be carriers of the kingdom. That just as Jesus came to say, look, the kingdom has come, but look, it will come again in its fullness one day. Our role as believers in Christ is to say, okay, then let's carry God's reign with us wherever we go. What can you do? What can I do? What can God through us do to bring his reign to make the world look a little bit more like what it will look like one day? And so certainly the Holy Spirit's work in us, through us, involves things like uh, eliminating injustice and working to fight poverty. Yes, it does involve that, but it also involves the, the, the things that we think of, more of the supernatural gifts and getting words of knowledge and prophecy and wisdom and all of this stuff. And we talked about a couple of those uh, last week in the morning services. We, did, we watched the Super Bowl last week here, which are a different kind of gifts altogether. But I think there's some confusion about this because when you sit in, you, you say, okay, well, we started the supernatural thing talking about the God who is presently present and active, who chooses to break in fully through his son and then now through the church. 
It's easy to sort of get the, the idea that the gifts are about me. That the gifts are about what you have and what I have. And I don't know how many of you went to the website at newlifechurch.org to, to, to answer these questions that kind of help guide you towards what your gifts may be. I went and did it just to have the experience. But I think there's a way that we can kind of think about the gifts like the X-Men think about their abilities. You know, well, what, what can that guy do? Oh, Wolverine, you know, he's got reinforced whatever steel in his bones and he heals, you know, you cut him and he heals again. And he, okay, no. But, but, and, and you think, well, what, what does this character have? Well, he has x-ray vision and this one can fly. And, you know, and we think about the comic book, comic book version of, 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 of abilities or, or supernatural things. And we bring that mentality, whether from Marvel comic books or not, we bring that mentality into the discussion about spiritual gifts. And very quickly it becomes about, well, what is it that you have? Oh, you've got that? Well, that's really cool. And what is it that you have? Oh, you have that? Ooh, well, I mean, that's okay. That's, a, that's sort of a B-grade gift, you know? And we laugh about this because even though we maybe have never said it that way, we've all thought to one degree or another, gosh, I wish I could do that one. I wish I had that gift, the gift of supernatural miracles or the gift of, you know, prophecy or, or reading someone's mail. I wish I had that gift where I just kind of knew you know, like, hey, by the way, your name is da 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 You know, we love that. Th- those are the ones that make the, the platform testimonies. And in our mind, we've got it kind of tiered. But you know what's interesting is what we've done with that, even on a small scale, we've kind of done on a church-wide global scale. And what I mean by that is we say, well, the churches that emphasize the gift of teaching, they're mainline. But the churches that emphasize the gift of, oh, say, tongues, they're charismatic. Anybody heard that terminology before? The truth is, whether the gift is teaching or encouragement or hospitality or service or prophecy or miracles or healing or any, the truth is, all of them are gifts of the Spirit, which by definition means we're all charismatic. So there's a bit of silliness that happens in the church when we say, well, I'm, you know, we are the full gospel, we are charismatic, and you just emphasize teaching, you're not charismatic. Did you know that teaching is as much an empowered gift of the Spirit as, say, tongues might be? Now, I'm picking on particular things for a reason, because whether you've realized it or not, chances are a lot of us have developed an internal snobbery about the gifts we think are better. And the gifts we think are more deserving and more spiritual. I don't know if it's good news to you or bad news to you that you, we're not the first Christians to have thought this way. In fact, the church in Corinth was very much this way. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he was writing to a people who were trying to find anything they could, any reason they could find to make themselves feel better. See, back in the day, when, when, before Rome took over Corinth, Corinth was this, was this city in, 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 in uh, 6th to 4th century B.C. that was a thriving center of culture and art. and In a way, it rivaled Athens and ancient Greece. It, was, it had all of the splendor and prestige. And then the Romans came and they destroyed it in 146 B.C., leveled it, just destroyed every trace of the culture and the arts that they had in there. And Corinth as a city lay dormant for about a hundred years. And then when Julius Caesar became Caesar, became emperor, he decided, you know, this is a pretty strategic city. This is right here on this isthmus. It's got two ports. 
We could do something with the city. And so he decides to reopen it as a Roman colony in, a, in about 46 AD, 44 BC, excuse me. And, but unlike the other Roman colonies, the thing that Julius Caesar did with Corinth is, it, with a lot of other Roman colonies, they would say, look, retired military, ex-Roman ex army vets, you get to have this colony. It was sort of the, the, the Roman Empire's version of a pension plan. Here's a city. But for Corinth, Caesar followed a different path. Instead of populating Corinth with all these retired ex-military people, he decides to send convicts there, ex-convicts. It might have been Australia of sorts, but they, they sent, sorry, no offense, but they sent ex-convicts there, and then, they, and then they decided to force immigration from other nearby areas and populate the city. But you know, an amazing thing happened to Corinth. Very quickly, because of their strategic location on this isthmus and having two ports, they got rich. I mean, they got rich quick. You might compare it to New York. This place of immigrants and maybe people looking for a new start and a new break and a new lease on life. And they come to this place that's got abundant resources. And boom, people make it rich. But you know what happens in a country or a colony or a place where there's no, there's no historic aristocracy, meaning who, the superiority is not by bloodline, it's based on something else. You know what the superiority begins to be based on? Wealth. Who's got the goods? Who's better than you? And I'm better than you because I made more money than you. This is all too familiar for us as Americans. This is the kind of climate, this is the kind of city Paul's writing to. Paul's Corinth, Gordon Fee says, Paul's Corinth is probably a mix between Vegas and New York and Los Angeles. It's sort of this place where people made their dreams come true and they were proud of what they had made for themselves. And so it's to these people that when Paul's writing about their gifts, he's saying, look... It's not about your gifts. And you're using your gifts to make yourselves feel superior to one another. And you're using your gifts to brag and to display and to sort of a game of one-upsmanship. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the point. In fact, the, these three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, have been compared to a kind of symphony, a kind of song, if you will, where... The first movement, chapter 12, is this thing that talks about all the different works and gifts of the Spirit. And chapter 13 would be that part in a, in, a, in a piece where it's the quiet movement. You know, it's where the brass sit out and the violas take over and it's just beautiful. It's just gorgeous movement. And then it comes back to 14 for this crescendo about being the body and all of this stuff. But chapter 13 is this key chapter because of how Paul uses it to frame the discussion. So briefly tonight, I want just to make a few observations about 1 Corinthians 13 and what it means for us as the body of Christ. I'm going to read out of a translation here by N.T. Wright, the, the Honorable Professor N.T. Wright, you know, Bishop of the Durham Cathedral. It's Christianity Today named him one of the top five living theologians, blah, blah. We're going to read his translation. 1 Corinthians 12, 31b. Now I'm going to show you a better way, a much better way. 
If I speak in human languages or even in those of angels but do not have love, then I've become a clanging gong or else a clashing cymbal. And if I should have prophetic gifts and know all the mysteries and all knowledge too, have faith to move mountains but have no love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and for pride's sake my very body but do not have love, it's useless. We're going to take this chapter in three sections and we're going to approach it a little bit out of order, we're going to take these first few verses, then we're going to skip to the last few verses, and then we'll come back to that middle section that's so often read at weddings. The first thing I want to say about this is love makes the gifts work together. It's love that makes the gifts work together. I think the thing that we forget is that we are all part of Christ's body. That in a very real way, Paul was saying, literally, look, you are part of Messiah's body. And just as the the ancient Israelites had a way of looking forward to Messiah, and they would talk about him as if he would represent the whole of the nation. So here, Paul is doing that about Jesus and saying, look, Jesus is doing this work, and how he does it is through you, that we're all part of this together, that the gifts were never meant to be privatized. They're not personal check marks. They're not feathers in your cap. They're not ways of kind of measuring your own personal, private, spiritual growth. I think it's so easy to kind of view it as this, as this thing, you know, almost like collecting points or collecting pieces. Well, I've, I've functioned now in all four of the, in four out of the nine in Liston Corinthians, and I'm working on the next five, you know. And we've got this thing where there are notches in the belt, and we sort of view this as personal development kind of stuff. And that's easy for us as Americans because we love personal development. We love being able to say, well, I've got this done, check. I've got this done, check. And Paul's trying to say the gifts Remember, love is what reminds you that we're all part of this body together. In fact, we'd say a spiritual gift is God's gift to the whole church through a particular individual who's received, who has received it. In other words, it might be better for us to, to say, uh, talk about the spiritual gifts not as what do you have, what do I have, but what is God given to our body through you? Because the spiritual gift is not a gift to you, for you. It's, you know, as part of your personal embetterment. The spiritual gift is given to us through you, through me, through her, through him. Does that make sense? Second observation here, as we get down to um, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 through 12. Let me make this observation first, then we'll read the text. And it's this, that love outlasts the gifts. We've heard this before, but let me read this to you. Love never fails, but prophecies will be abolished, tongues will stop, and knowledge too be done away. We know in part, but in perf- with perfection the partial is abolished. As a child I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child, and when I grew up I threw off childish ways. For at the moment all that we can see are puzzling reflections in a mirror, then face to face. Incidentally, mirrors were first invented in the city of Corinth. So Paul's using a metaphor from their everyday world. He's saying, like, look, you know how when you look at yourself in the mirror, things are not quite right? And think about maybe ancient mirrors not being quite as good as our current mirrors. And even current mirrors, you know, the, you see things in reverse. And So he's using this picture and saying, look, we, we, now it works kind of imperfectly, but there's this thing coming. 
I know in part for now, but then I'll know completely through and through, even as I'm completely known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain in these three, and of them all, love is the greatest. Love is what will outlast our gifts. Some streams of the body of Christ have used this verse to say, well, look, the perfect has come. The perfect is this. This is the perfect thing. It has come. I don't think that that's what Paul means. Because if he did mean that, he would say, one day when you have my letters written down and all this stuff, you guys can just cut it out, knock it off. But the whole buildup of his letter to the church in Corinth is this hope. He keeps talking about the resurrection. He keeps talking about the day that we'll all be raised with Christ. He keeps talking about this one day where everything is going to be made perfect and set right. And he's saying, look, the one thing that's going to work there that also works here is love. That everything else you get good at here won't be needed there. Isn't that amazing? In some ways you could say love is the language of God's future that has begun now. It's as if God has said, look, I know what's coming and I know how in this final state of things the only thing that's going to be there is love and because of that I want you to start getting it now. I love the way N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, look, he says, love is the way of life in the new world to which by grace we are bound. In other words, we're going to get there. But we need to learn it here and now. It is the grammar of the language we shall speak there. Wonderful. The more progress we make in it here, the better we shall be equipped. Love is this thing that outlasts the gifts. And so we say, well, I, I'm good at this, and I'm good at this, and I want the Lord to use me in this way, and I want the Lord to use me in this way. And he says, great, but how's it going with how you are doing with loving others? Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about why we pray for miracles? Do you remember this? And we said that the reason Jesus never did a miracle when someone demanded proof. He never did a miracle when someone was arguing. He never did it to settle an argument. He does miracles. He did miracles when he was moved by compassion. There's something Paul wants us to catch that, look, before you get caught up in saying, I, need, I can do this and I want this and, I, you know, Lord, help move in me. This, he's saying, look, you've got to get that, you, number one, you belong to the body, but number two, love is the thing that lasts beyond these gifts. In fact, because of that, love is how we will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3, earlier in the letter, Paul writes, but by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work shall be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. And it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Imagine that day where we stand. We say, God, but look at all the stuff I've done. I mean, I did this, and didn't, did you know that, that I was one of those guys that had crusades and campaigns and hundreds of thousands came? Or you can say, well, did you know, God, I was the woman who every time I saw someone, I had a prophetic word for them, and I had insight, and I did this. Well, God, did you know that every time I prayed for someone, miracles happened? God, did you know that I did this and did that? And he says, that's great. Let's take it. Okay, so this is your life's work, and let's run it through this fire, and let's say that the only thing 
that was done out of love and built on Christ lasts. In a sense, that's because love is the thing that outlasts the gifts. How do we do something that's eternal, right? All of us want this. I want to do something that lasts. I want a legacy. I want something. How do we know what that is? I think the only way that our work lasts is when our work has this life flow of love in it, that it's fueled by love for others. So what is it? What is love? What is love? What is it? So this middle section, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is great-hearted. Love is kind. Knows no jealousy. Makes no fuss. It's not puffed up. Knows no shameless ways. Doesn't force its rightful claim doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rejoices rather in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things, endures all things. Now we could close this tonight and say, oh man, wasn't that awesome? Love! I love love! (laughs) As Christians, we're famous for saying things like, I love the lost. I just have a heart for missions. I love the poor. I love the world. And we're famous for saying all those things. But do you know why it never translates into any meaningful action? Because you can't love the world. Like, what? You can't love the lost. You can't love the poor. You can't love the orphans. You can't love missions. You can't love anything else that you can put one of these around. Quotations. You know why you can't love that? Because those are categories. Those are ideas. Karl Marx, many decades ago, wrote the Communist Manifesto. And most of us know Marx was the champion of the common man. It was all about the common worker, the, pr- the proletariat. Let's defend the average guy. The only common worker Karl Marx ever knew was the woman who worked in his house, Helen DeMuth, also known as Lenschen. What did Karl Marx do with the only common worker he ever knew? He had an affair with her, a child with her, and then kicked her out of his home without so much as a penny. Thank you, Karl Marx, for loving the common man. You see... All these poets and all these philosophers and all these songwriters that we've been inundated with on the radio all day today, all weekend, all our syrupy love songs about the things that we'll do are all people talking about loving ideas, loving a category. But you can't love a category. You can't love an idea. You can only love a person right in front of you. And the measure of our love is not our heart for missions. I mean, Joe Couch, I'm looking at you. Joe, you probably had loads of people over the years. I have such a heart for missions. Have you ever been? Nope. Have you shared your faith ever? Nope. But I have this heart for missions. This happens all the time. I would challenge us today that if we're going to really live out this thing that Paul's writing, 
We can't make ourselves feel good because we have such a heart for the lost. You don't have a heart for categories. You love individuals. You individually love people. It's what Marx never understood. It's what so many of these other poets and philosophers never understood. But I believe it's what Paul understood. How do I know that? Well, let's take a guess. Why would Paul write a description about love to people that he knew well, had been with them, if he knew they could turn around and say, now, Paul, you weren't like that, right? Would Paul do that? Chances are Paul was so confident to say, love is kind, love is not puffed up, love bears multitude, love does all these things. The reason Paul could say that was probably because he knew that when he was with them, that's how he loved them. I want us tonight as we, as we close this and get ready for baptisms to think about three questions that could help us in our prayer. Prayerful imagination, imaginative prayer. I love both of those things. There's something that we kind of involve our imagination and our prayerfulness. And one is this, how do you see, how do we see Love like this in Jesus. The 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, the kind that is great-hearted, that's kind, that doesn't boast. How do we see that in Jesus? Maybe that's something to meditate on this week, to say, think about moments in the gospel stories of, oh yeah, there was Jesus, and at that time you did that, and that time that you took time, to, you know, we can picture that. Imagine that. That's a good prayerful discipline to do. But the other question is, how do we see love like that in our own lives? I, I don't. <laughs> like most of you are like, oh, yeah, me too. But here's the third question. How, what would love like this look like in our lives? And maybe that's the thing to ask. Okay, so we read this again. Love is great-hearted. Love is kind. So what does that look like with the specific faces of individuals in my life? What does this look like with my spouse? What does this look like with my children? What does this look like with my coworkers? What does this actually, what would it look like if I loved this person in this way? Do you see what I'm moving us toward? Not a nice talk on love. Bravo, God is love. But a talk that says, can you actually imagine what loving your wife would look like if it were to be like that? What would that be? Because I think the Holy Spirit wants us to kind of see this so that as he's working in us, he could say, remember in our prayer time, we said that loving your wife was going to look like waking up with the kids this morning, but I'm tired. That's me, you know. Yes, but remember, we had this moment in prayer where you were going to imagine that the kind of love that was kind was going to be do this for you. Yes. So in that moment, okay, then conform me to that. But I think if we walk away and say, I don't want to think about it, I want to imagine it, I don't want to work at what this actually looks like, then congrats. You'll be a lover of a category. You'll be one of those who loves your marriage and loves your spouse you haven't actually said, God, help me imagine prayerfully what that literally looks like tomorrow, tonight, the next day, the next week, the week after that. Does that make sense? 
Last thing in closing tonight that um, I think is a great opportunity for us. In a few days on Wednesday, it's called Ash Wednesday. It's the first day of Lent. How many of you grew up in churches where you observed Lent and you understood what, you know? How many of you that you grew up observing Lent, but you'd say it was kind of meaningless to you at the time? Okay, that's fine to say that. What I would tell you is this. Lent is this 40-day period prior to Easter, plus a few extra days, plus a few Sundays. And the occasion, it began very early. In fact, it began as baptism candidates in the second century were getting ready to be baptized. And they said, how about the 40 days right before Easter, these people would go through a period of reflection and prayer and examination in preparation for baptism. I didn't make these guys wait 40 days, but we did have a 30-minute class. Um, But it comes out of this idea to say we want to make sure people are right now. What began to happen is they said, hey, how about all believers for the 40 days prior to Easter, we lay down something, we give up something, we know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings so that we might experience resurrection again in our lives. Now, 40-day fast periods, Moses did it, Elijah did it, Jesus did it. So we can't be too far off here. It's something the Son of God himself did. But I want to invite us to consider doing this. Consider, it could be something in your life that, that you say, well, this is borderline um, compulsive, addictive, maybe not even harmful, but just like I am an ESPN-obsessed person, you know, or I am, you know, whatever that is. Yeah, my wife is laughing. She's like, you. <laughs> yeah. um, whatever that is, maybe it's something like that. Or maybe it's something you say, you know what, there's nothing wrong with this, there's nothing harmful about this, but just for these 40 days leading up to Easter, starting on Wednesday, I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to let it go, not because it's evil, not because it's bad, I'm going to let it go because I just want to make more space to devote my heart to Christ. We, I grew up, uh, when I was real young, in an Anglican church, and then we moved on to a non-denominational church, and been in non-denominational churches from age 10 till 32, till now. I've realized that non-denominational churches have a church calendar too. You know, summer camp, fall small group kickoff, you know. We, we have a church calendar. The difference is our church calendar revolves around our activity. It's what I'm doing. And God, would you come and join me? The historic church calendar revolves around the life of Christ. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, Pentecost. And it, remi- it invites us in to focus on Christ. I love that. So I, 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 we're going to observe Lent in our home this year for the first time probably since I've been a child. And the thing I think I'm going to give up, now it's official because I'm saying it, starting Wednesday, is, is Twitter and Facebook and blogging. Now, that's hard for me. I, that's really, you know, but my wife is rejoicing. And I, I'll tell you, I know it's going to make me more present to my family at home, but I also know it's going to make me more present to the Lord. And I just want to challenge you. What, is there something that you could say, you know what, for the next 40, and it's, it's, it's actually 40 days, but the Sundays don't count. This is kind of the good news. The Sundays are like, they're called feast days or mini, mini Easter's. So every Sunday I'll be tweeting and blog, you know, 
But the other day, you know, starting Wednesday, the other days, you get to, you know, anyway. Look, I'd like to invite you in that. We're not going to have an Ash Wednesday service here at New Life or anything like that. But I, I would like to invite you to join me in this, join us in this, as a way of saying, okay, you know, let's put some substance to even our love for God. God, I love you. God, I love you. God, I love you. Okay, well, great. Are you making room for me in your life? Have you let me interrupt your rhythms? Lent is a perfect way to say, I'm going to let go of my normal rhythms so that I may take hold of something rich in Christ. Simple. You don't have to do it for legalism. You don't have to do it because it's whatever. The church has done it for thousands, a couple thousand years. Okay? Woo! All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us the kind of love that lays its life down, lays your, laid your life down. And um, help us to specifically imagine moments, instances, actions that we can do to love others around us. And as we enter the season of Lent, we pray with Paul, we want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings and the power of your resurrection. We, we, want, we want to join in with you, suffer with you, in a way, so that we can experience afresh your life, your heart, your power. In Jesus' name.